Yeah. Okay, let's get this web conference underway. We'll start with a karakia. Muna het po te po fere marama. Tomakia te ao te ao fatitangata. Tatai kiroa, tatai kiraro, tatai ahero. Tumie huie tai. Oh, yes, yeah. Kia ora tata. Hare mai and welcome to the backyard biodiversity field trip. Ko Shelley Takuingoi, your Lens Kayarahi, your guide on this field trip. And a big welcome to our speaking school, St. Gerard's from Alexandra, I can see you there. Great stuff. And also to our experts. So I'm talking to you from Otipoti Dunedin, and I'll give a chance to our experts to introduce themselves. Um, so looking around my screen, I think Mahuru, you come up first. Morena. Morena Koto. Um, well, I'll do a little introduction. You would have heard this yesterday, but I'll do it again in case any of you weren't there. Um, ko Putawaki, ko Maua Nga Maunga, ko Ohine Matero, ko Waikareao Nga Awa, ko Ngati Pukeko, ko Ngai Tamara Wahunga Hapu, ko Ngati Awa, ko Ngati Ranginui Nga Iwi, ko Mahuru Wilcox Ahau. Um, kia ora everyone, nice to see your faces there. Um, I am Mahiru and I am a wetland ecologist um, and I work in a Māori research team at our office in um, at Manaki Whenua in Kirikiridoa or Hamilton. But as you can see, I'm working at home because we're in lockdown, unfortunately. Um, yeah, so I'm really looking forward to answering your questions today. Kia ora, thanks Mahiru. And Norm. Oh, you're on mute there, Norm. Uh, kia ora, ko Norman Mason, uh, toku ingoa. Um, I whānau uh, au uh, kei uh, pōneke, uh, whanganui uh, uh, a tara. Uh, Enāre, um, e noho ana hau uh, kei uh, Morrinsville, i nai ane. Um, ko uh, pia ko te, te awa, ko uh, te aroha te maunga uh, ki kone. Uh, yes, I was just saying I was born in Wellington, but I'm living in Morrinsville now. And um, uh, around here, our river is the Piako, and the big mountain here is uh, Te Aroha. Yeah, so, um, and I'm, a, I'm an ecologist with, um, with uh, Manaki Whenua. I work with uh, Mahuru. We work in the same office when we're allowed to go to the office. Yeah, uh, so good morning, everyone. It's brilliant to be here. Kia ora. Thanks, Norm. And Rude. Kia ora tātou, everybody. Kia ora tātou. My name is Ruth Kleinpaster. I live in Christchurch. I was born in Indonesia. I was raised in the Netherlands. I've travelled almost all over the world with Animal Planet and Discovery Channel, which was really cool. And, uh, and I'm a nature nerd. I, I just go into nature and do stuff. And whether that's bugs or, or, or birds or plants, it doesn't really matter. And the funny thing is that I think Norm is exactly the same. And Mahuru is exactly the same, and Shelley is exactly the same, and Barry is exactly the same. And this is probably why we're all here, because we believe that our biodiversity that is all over the world, all the the the, the creatures, the the fungi, the bacteria, the slime molds, the plants, the mosses, the lichen. Do I have to go on? You know what I mean. This is what's running the planet. So. I'd love to be part of this whole thing, and I, uh, I'm looking forward to your questions. Awesome. Hi. Thanks very much. And, of course, we've got Barry, who's running the show um, from the Learns office, and he is based in Ōtetahi, Christchurch, as well. So we'll get underway with questions from St. Gerard's, but before we start, there might be someone that wants to introduce your class and why you've been studying biodiversity or been a part of this field trip. Yora, Tina Koto Kato, Ko St. Jerry's Takuda, Ko Kopuai Temonga, Ko Manahirakia, Ko Masa Aonya Awa, Ko Kaitahu Timana Fenua, Ko Taki Timi Tiwaka, Ko Tama Toko Ingoa, Norera, Tina Koto, Tina Koto, Tina Koto Kato. Kia we are St. Jerry's School from, from Alexandra Central Chaga. Our class is called Otiaki, which is lo local conservation park in Hawk Dun Range. We are year seven and eight students. Kia ora. Well 
really nice to have you along and that was such a great introduction and um, I'd have to say it brings back memories because I started teaching in Alexandra back last century <laughs> and I taught at Alexandra Primary School for a couple of years so it's really lovely to have you along this morning it's bringing back lots of good memories of, of Alex and the surrounding countryside and I'm really interested in what biodiversity you've discovered in the area. So we'll get started with uh, questions. Can we have question number one, please? What species of fish are found in New Zealand wetlands? Can you tell us a bit about some of them? Uh, yes, and this sounds like a question for Mahuru. And this is Tain, I think, is his name. Yep. Kia ora, Tain. Um, that is such an awesome question. Thank you for asking that. Um, we have so many fish in our native wetlands, and there's one thing that, um, that they have in common, and a lot of them are migratory. So what does that mean? It means that they move between um, freshwater, wetlands, rivers and streams, and saltwater. So I've actually got a couple of pictures of some of my favourites, but um, I'll show those to you in a second. So this group of fish is the galaxids, and it's quite a big group of um, our native fish. And you may know whitebait or have eaten whitebait before, and whitebait's actually made up of a number of our native fish species. So some of them are our giant kōkōpū, um, our banded kōkōpū, short jaw kōkōpū and kōaro and those are four galaxids and also you find those um, often find those in our wetlands. I was actually having a look um, on a map at what fish you might find in your wetlands around Alexandra and it was actually a bit of a gap and I realized that a lot of your rivers that flow to the ocean have dams on them and they actually stop the fish migrating upstream to your wetlands um, so you may not find them around Alexandra specifically, but you can find other native fish in your rivers and streams that don't migrate. I talked a little bit yesterday about our native eels. Um, that's our long fin and our short fin eel. Um, and fortunately, um, there are some, of pro some programs around those dams that actually um, those, the, the power companies are required um, to catch some of the eels at the bottom of the dam that are trying to migrate upstream and physically move them above the dam and then do that on their way back as they head to the sea. So that's really positive. Otherwise, yeah, you have a bit of a, a gap in the country where you don't find too many native fish. So I'm going to show you a couple of pictures. One of them is my favourite, which is the giant kōkōpū. So it's about the size of your forearm. Sometimes they grow a bit bigger. And let me see if I can share this picture with you all. Oh, disabled share, sorry. Only the host can do that. <laughs> oh. Uh, you have to do something there. What I'll do is I'll... I can send them to Shelley, who can send them on to you. So our galaxids are really cool. And when you think about biodiversity, galaxids are a really interesting example of how everything works together. Um, as I said, they're migratory, so they need to move through a whole different uh, types of environments. And one of the cool things I learned when I was working on the wetland um, where we did the video is that the koaro found in the, in the wetland there actually help our native mussels. You may not know, we have a freshwater mussel. Our native fish help those mussels move around because obviously mussels can't move, they, they live in the sediment. But what happens when those mussels breed is the tiny, tiny microscopic baby mussels attach to the gills of our native fish and as the native fish move upstream, the mussels get bigger and bigger. And when they get too big, they drop off the gills and they settle and they make a little colony of mussels there. 
So I thought that was pretty interesting and it really shows a great example of how our species work together in those relationships and why we need biodiversity, why we need all these different species to be present in our wetlands, our rivers, our streams. I could go on forever, but I might stop there. (laughs) Good stuff. Thanks, Mahuru. And that was a great question to start us on. Mahuru, can I I just interrupt here? When I, I quite often go to your neck of the woods, uh, Alexandra, I'm quite often in Bannockburn and, and at the back there of Cromwell. And I remember quite clearly that one of the locals there told me they have found the Gollum Galaxius, the Gollum whitebait, not far from where you are, namely in the Nevis River. So if you go to Bannockburn and you go over the hill to the Nevis Valley, you will find them in the river there. That is a really rare thing that only occurs in places like Stewart Island, the Catlins, and now we know in the Nevis River as well. So you have some fish when you don't have dams. You have some fish that are extremely special and endemic to your area. I just thought I'd make that point because I love galaxids. Yeah, and there's also some mudfish which are also found in those upper reaches, but they're not migratory, so they don't require the passage to sea, so they're able to live in land in areas where there are dams. Mm. So it's quite cool. You find quite big differences within a similar family of fish. So are those Gollum galaxids also non-migratory? Yeah, they're non-migratory. Ah, clever. They don't need a, a travel passport. They don't need vaccinations. They stay in that <laughs> river. <laughs> They've locked themselves mm. down. <laughs> yeah, they don't have COVID restrictions. Yeah, self-imposed. Perfect. Cool. Thank you. And yeah, they're question... pretty cool. They can they can handle drying out for part of the year, called estivation as well. So you can find them in all sorts of places, like even in farm drains. So, and I've just put a couple of links in the chat here, which kids might want to follow. Just the Wikipedia about the uh, the mudfish um and actually the ones up here apparently they they were considered a delicacy they're what they called the black mudfish uh, around the waikato people used to like to eat it um yeah so cool cool fish yeah cool thank you so much so much information we've got a wealth of talent on board this morning thanks guys and question two please from jelena And you'll need to be unmuted. Thanks. Yep. Um, my name is Yelena, and um, my question is: How can we help biodiversity increase around our homes and school? Good question. Uh, what an important question. Thank you. Who wants to start with that one? Have you got? Have you got an hour? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, honestly, that is. That is exactly the question I would like to hear from uh, students and teachers, because that is the way forward. I quite often, I often take the mickey out of the Department of Conservation by saying there's not much to conserve, we need to restore. So that is the question about restoration. How do we restore our biodiversity and look after it? And by doing that is providing the all the creepy crawlies and all the fungi and all the fish and all the beetles and gosh knows what you've got to provide them with the correct habitat. And that is what this is about. So preserve your habitat. Make sure that that is in good nick. I'll give you one example uh, that I think is, for instance, in your area, really cool with Otago skink, for instance. The Ota- you know the Ota- you know the Otago skink down in Alexandra, and uh, and there's a lot of people that are working on restoring their habitat, and Otago skinks are of course insectivores; they eat insects. So how do you get as much food and habitat in your area? And one of the ways is to to restore your area with the right plants, but the other one is to actually provide them with real good habitat for their food. So this is what bugs are doing if you want a lot of bugs to be fed on by birds or skinks or whatever or geckos try some huge rotting logs 
because they are always full of slaters, millipedes, centipedes, uh, 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 little hoppers, uh, springtails. I can go on. Uh, uh, Bora beetle. You can go on and on and on. And then you get caterpillars who are very good at recycling old wood. Did you realize New Zealand has got in the ecoforet family the most caterpillar species in the world that actually do wood recycling? Now, that wow. is a sitting duck for all our skinks, lizards, geckos, uh, but also other predatory animals. So one link, little thing, as much, if you want lots of biodiversity, let's say in your school ground, get somebody with a tractor and a chainsaw and a, and a trailer and get big logs of things that are cut down, you know, old pine logs, wild pine. There you go. The wilding pines, you know, get rid of, don't burn them. Take the logs, put them in your school. Oh. Can I, 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 I can uh, um, jump in there because I was, I was uh, in Alex um, just in April this year and we had a little field trip out um, out behind the um, the clock that's on the rock there, you guys know that clock? Little Valley. Yeah, um, out back there, they've got this really nice shrubland. It has all these, what they call divaricating shrubs. Now, these are like shrubs that all have all these twisty, twiny branches. And they have, have berries, but their berries are often actually on the inside of the shrub. Now, why would they put their berries on the inside of the shrub? Because the birds can't get into the inside of the shrub to get the berries. So it could lizards. be, and people have posited this, that's food for lizards. And you go to this place and it's got these nice, what they call tours, rocky, little rocky outcrops with little crevices where the lizards like to hang out in there. And so they hang out in the rocks and they've come out and eat the, uh, eat the berries off the shrubs. So that's a cool place to go. I don't know what the name of the reserve, but it's just out the back of the, of the clock in Alex. And so you, you guys can find all sorts of interesting plants. I found little ferns tucked in behind the rocks there all sorts of weird shrubs there's a native um a native blackberry out there um so it could be worth having a poke around if you wanted to see what kind of biodiversity you might have in there i suppose if you're talking skinks as well and, and other lizards the other big thing is is controlling the invasive mammals so your your pest control as well because that they like to to gobble up the um the native lizards it's a tasty snack for them yeah yeah, and yeah, just to reinforce what, what Rude was saying as well, a place like Alex where it's been really heavily modified by, by people over time, there's not a lot of the native habitat left, so that can make a real big difference for biodiversity in your areas to start creating, recreating um, habitat. Yeah, mm. thank you. Lovely, Norm. Kia ora, thanks, Norm. And question three, please. From Bella, I think. Hi, my name is Bella. Uh, what might New Zealand's wetlands look like in the future? What can impact that? Uh, another good question. Kia ora, Bella. Yeah, kia ora, Bella. Awesome question. Um, well, there's a lot of work at the moment to restore our wetlands um, all over the country. So... Unfortunately, we've lost 90% of our wetlands, so only 10% remain. So what people are trying to do now is they realise how important our wetlands are for the health of our environment and our, and our fresh water, is they're trying to recreate or restore what was once um, in these wetland areas. So the kind of piggybacks on that last question is firstly, it's understanding what used to be there and then making sure that you're putting um, our native species that used to be there back where they belong. So, for example, you wouldn't get a, um, a flax from the North Island and bring it down to the South Island because it's very unlikely to survive the temperature change. So really understanding what used to be in this particular area. Um, and there are many experts out there. So. Um, what we're trying to do is really, yeah, restore um, diverse habitat. So not just three types of plants, but, but a whole range of what used to be there. And once you create those homes um, for the animals and the insects and things like that, they will often, but not always, come back. And when they don't come back, that's when you can do translocations and start to bring things back to the 
um, habitat which suits them. Um, as Norm picked up before as well, it's really important that you get rid of those pest species that will just wipe out your native birds, your native fish, things like that. Um, so what impacts them? Lots of things. <laughs> um, you may have seen on the news, there's um, a lot of focus on the way that we farm because a lot of wetland removal happened because of farming and is still happening because of farming. But fortunately, there's lots of farmers out there who want to change the way that they farm and make sure that our native habitats are included as part of their farm farming practices. So I know up here, um, one of the farmers at, at the Tōreparu wetland where we did the video didn't realise that his stock were actually catching liver flukes, which is a disease of cattle, by going into the wetland and drinking the water. So it was actually for his benefit too that they fenced off the wetland to keep the stock out. So people are really starting to learn that it's a double benefit to... Um, to restore and maintain the habitat that we have alongside um, the way that they use the land. So I'm not sure if that quite answers your question, but um, yeah, we're really sort of trying to change things up a bit and looking at restoring and recreating what we've lost. Awesome, thanks Mahuri. There's another little thing. I think Mahuri <laughs> should also have a look at bio, uh, biosecurity, like quarantining type stuff. Because when people are sick of their goldfish, they either flush it down the toilet or they set it free in a wetland nearby. And so we need to really think about those sort of things as well, about the importation of ornamental fish or creatures that live in aquariums and that they either escape or being released. So we are diluting the integrity of our wetlands too. Yeah, most of the, so up in the Waikato here, we have a huge problem with carp and a uh, whole number yeah. of invasive um, fish species. People either let them go as pets that they no longer want to care for, or they have put them into the wetlands and rivers and streams because that's what they had at, in their homes previously, um, home countries. So people are just not educated about the impacts that those fish have on our native species. And one controversial one, which I'm going to bring up, is trout. I trout. was, was going to do it if you didn't. <laughs> Go on. Trout are the biggest, <laughs> one of the biggest aquatic pests that you will find. They are extremely aggressive. So Rude was talking about some of those rare galaxids. And one of the reasons they're so rare is that trout eat them and trout compete for their food. So they also eat the same insects. And the reason that there are these little pockets of these rare, rare galaxids in your sort of Otago, Central, uh, South Canterbury kind of region is because people have been putting barriers to stop the trout so these, these fish are safe. So, yes, it's a big topic, the trout one, because trout are protected, um, but our native fish aren't. So I think we are shifting that mindset. Well, I hope that we are. Um, there's a lot of push in the freshwater community to really put in some protections for our native fish. Um, and also maybe look at areas of excluding trout, of getting rid of them, because, you know, you find them all over the country. Why do we need so many trout? Hmm. Um, yeah, so good good point there, Rude. Mm, and it uh, might yeah. be something that you want to discuss in your class. Have a that bit is of a good discussion over. to have. Yeah, the rat, the, yeah, we call them the rats of the waterways. Can you imagine that? So that's the sort of damage they can do. And yeah, we need to have that discussion. And you know what, Alexander? Why don't you start that? I'd love to hear how that debate goes because there'd be some people that were avid fisher people mm. um, who want, want trout and those that don't want trout. So it's always good to discuss different points of view and, and try and come up with something that's going to be good for everybody. Mm. Excellent. And question number four now, please. From Savannah, I think. 
Hi, my name is Savannah, and can you please tell us more about plants in New Zealand that are poisonous, edible, or medicinal? Ooh, Savannah. Yeah. Thanks, Savannah. You Who would like to go off? with that one? You want to start off, Mahalu? <laughs> yeah, I'd happily start off on this one. I thought you might be all sick of my voice by now. No, um, <laughs> well, I think maybe I'll touch on the edible and medicinal plants just a little bit, give you a couple of examples. I'm actually just going to grab a prop. I'll be one second. Yeah. And it's a book that I find really um, helpful when it comes to looking at medicinal plants. And I'll, I'll put a, a link through to Shelley, and that's yeah. Maori Healing and Herbal. Um, by Murdoch Riley, and that gives you some really good information about medicinal properties of oh, you know, this is a this is a thick book, so it gives you a lot of information about medicinal properties of plants. So, where should I start with that? Um, maybe I'll start with one of the most commonly known ones, which I touched on in the video, and that's kawakawa and. You don't have kawakawa in the colder areas, so down where you are, but you do have karamu, which is very similar. So uh, it's a caprosma. And they have very similar properties, and you can use them in a similar way. So really great for um, skin irritations. So you can either just boil up the leaves and put them the cooled leaves directly onto any cuts, um, or mild infections or rashes. So that's a really good one. Um, and this links into that poisonous thing too, because you need to be with someone who really knows their plants. You don't want to be picking things that are you think are right, but potentially poisonous or potentially can cause irritation. Um, so that's why books are really helpful, but also knowing um, somebody who is uh, experienced in medicinal and edible plants. Um, there is a very poisonous fungus found in New Zealand called the death cat. And it looks like other fungus. So people have been known to make the mistake of collecting it and eating it and dying. So again, it's really important that you um, go out and collect things with an expert who really knows their stuff. I think Noor might have just <laughs> put in a link maybe about the death cap. I'm not sure. Um, so there are lots of edible um, fungi out there and plants, but I would, yeah, I'd be a bit cautious to let you know too much in case you go out there and make a mistake. Mm. But mm. I really suggest um, a really good book like the one I showed um, and also a really good native plant book, which I'm sure Rude and, or Norm could um, direct you to. Yeah, fungi are always a little bit of a trick, aren't they? That's a, you've got to be very careful with them. My dad used to tell me that if you want to go foraging for mushrooms in the forest, get the whole bag and then present them to a goat. And then the goat will sniff each one of them going, and it will only eat the ones that you can eat. And you just have to memorize which one the goat ate and not make any mistakes. And I think it's a really dodgy way of doing things, but you know, that was my dad. I've heard similar advice about watching native birds and seeing what ones they eat, but knowing that they have quite a different system to us, it may not be that reliable. <laughs> Certainly not carefully. Yeah. <laughs> you got anything, Norm? Sorry, what's that? No, have, you got, have you got anything on the plants? Oh, just, um, you know, I just posted in that link. Um, yeah. There is a book out there, but it may be out of print um, on the poisonous plants of New Zealand by Henry mm. Connor. Mm. Um, and actually the um, the National Poison Centre Center, Dunedin. is in Dunedin, just down the road. Mm. Um, and so in that link, it's also got a an email uh, address for the National Poison Centre, so you might you might be able to email them, and they might tell you about some plants that poisonous plants that you might need to look out for in your in your area in Alexandra or around Central Otago. Mm, that's uh, right. Something for for people to research, maybe. 
Yeah, some good advice. Thank you. Mycology community that all fungi are edible, some of them only once. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh dear. Oh dear. That's a good one. Now here's a, here's a here's a plant that I, I I love the story because it shows you how everything is connected in the world. There's a plant, and I think it's mostly in the north. It's called tutu, climbing berry. It's a vine and things like that. And also in the north is this little sap-sucking bug with lacy wings. And people call it a lacy moth, but it's not. It's a true, true uh, bug. It came from Australia, the passion vine hopper. And that passion vine hopper loves to put its proboscis into the trunk or into the vine of that tutu. And it sucks the sap. It's a sap-sucking insect, literally. And what happens is it processes that tutu sap in its system and it poops out honeydew. And honeydew is really nice and sweet. It is really uh, an important food for kaka, tui, for a whole lot of creatures, a whole lot of birds that are in the forest there as well. But the sap of the tutu through the gut system of this passion vine hopper is often collected by honeybees. And that's the stuff that's going into the honey. So honeybees collect the, um, the, uh, the, the honeydew and put it into the honey. And once it's in the honey, it is extremely poisonous to any human that wants to eat that. It's amazing. So there are now regulations for beekeepers not to go and put their hives near, for instance, tutu uh, uh, groups, tutu plants, because that has the ability for tutu honeydew to go into the honey that bees make. And people have died as a result of that. So here's a lovely interest interaction between a plant, an insect, and humans via food that we get from out there. It, following on from that, Rude, I know that the um, Ngati Paromere Collective have barrel like drums and drums of honey that is poisonous that they can't use. And so they're looking at ways that they can utilize that honey possibly as a poison for possums. So it's, again, the cycle continues on as how can you use this honey that is no longer good for humans, but could we use it for pest control instead? So oh, that's the progress at the moment. <laughs> what a lovely story. Cool. Yeah. Oh, there you go. See, see, but but what, what it tells you, Alexander, is that in nature, you might come up with one question. And if you put your science mind into it, you come out at totally different uh, areas with all the answers you're getting. And that is what makes science and biodiversity so interesting. I can talk with Mahuru and Norm and Shelley and, and everybody for hours about that. We go into the pub, have a beer and talk about it. That's <laughs> what we should do. We might come up with all sorts of solutions to so many problems. Yes, good. <laughs> really cool. And I'm sure you guys at uh, St. Jared's can as well. I've actually researched that very question, Rude. Um, for uh, primary industries. And so one thing we looked at was the, the impact on of climate change on that. So, because what we find is the passion vine hoppers are limited by cold temperatures in the winter. So yeah. they don't occur in, occur in places like um, Alexandra nope. at the moment, but in Not the future yet. they might. And so it could be a problem for honey producers down there. So something exactly. to look out for. Exactly. Just another layer on top of your already complicated story. Yep. There's your there's your econ economics. Absolutely. But this is what this is about. And that shows you that climate change is important, but biodiversity is equally important. But actually, very few people, except for us, talk about this at the moment. Mm, yeah. And, and how biodiversity can help us be more resilient yep. to climate change. Yep. It will be another interesting discussion to have in your classroom. Okay, question number five now, please. Hi, my name is Charlotte, and what is the most interesting insect or bug you've ever heard of, heard of or seen? Can you please tell us a bit about it? 
Oh, I'm looking forward to these answers. <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there is, look, to be quite honest, people ask me quite often, what is your favorite bud? And then I always say, which is the favorite child of your parents? Or, you know, it's, it's really hard to say of millions and millions of species, which one is the favorite? And the answer I tend to give is the one with the best stories the ones that make you go like wow i didn't know that and and so i've started collecting stories of things that we can learn from nature not about nature we're not learning in nature just doing that we're learning from nature and i'll give you a tiny example of one of the creatures that i can tell you a story about that that occurs actually in your area for instance and you can suddenly go like wow i never knew this and that creature is the new zealand wetter oops shit it just here we go just jumped off my hand it shouldn't do that here we go i'll give you a really close look at a wetter two antennae twenty thousand smell senses it can smell where it is where the food is, what tree it's on. It has ears on its front legs, right there. You can see them. Oh, can I show them? There, see the little pit on the front leg there? That's ears. Both front legs can hear. And if they want to know where something is coming from a sound, they go like this. Stereophonic scanning of the air. What was that? Who was that? Who was that? You know what I mean? They have lovely, long, spiny hind legs with which they can kick. Here we go. See the spines? Woo They've got wonderful pads on the underside of their legs that are kind of bluish gray. Can you see those there? That is for soft surfaces so they can hang on. They've got crampons on their feet so they can stick into, into bark and things like that when they climb up. They've got wonderful taste buds on their head here, right here. Those little feelers. So they can, ah, they got mandibles. And at the moment, Dorothy's giving me a big bite. Can you see that? And I'll oh. tell you what, it, it kind of hurts and I can't pull it out. Ah, ah, don't, Dot, stop it. Oh, hang on. I've got to Look, see what I mean? There you go. <sighs> anyway, they're nocturnal. They live usually in trees. But in your area, the tree wetter lives in rocks. I think of areas like the Rock and Pillar near Middlemarch, you know, the, the, the hills there. I can think, I think they're in the Old Man Range. They're on the Nevis. They are in the whole spine of the South Island, Mount Cook. And what happens there is these guys live in the small plants that live in, in alpine conditions, where they eat, as Norm said, the berries and things. And they then poop the seeds out further up after they've eaten the berries. So their ecosystem service is actually seed dispersal in places like that. They disperse seed through the habitat. But the coolest thing is that they live under rocks usually or under, under schist. And when the schist warms up in the day, that is nice because it'd be still warm when it's evening, when the wetter wakes up. So they've got warmth to move around. But as you well know, in Alexandra, what happens when there's, see, she vomits too on me when she is really hecked off with me. Can you see it? And it stinks. I can let you smell it here. Smell? Oh my God. The, the world of insects is chemical. It's, oh, that smells. It says like, you want to eat me? That's what I smell like. Guess what it tastes like. Anyway, so at night, when it's really cold in Alex in the winter, minus 10, minus 20 up in the hills at 1,500 to 2,000 meters, those wetter cannot move. They freeze. They literally are solid frozen during winter. And what happens in the summertime or in the springtime when it warms up, they thaw out and they go like, that was a cold winter and they walk off. Can you imagine being solid frozen and surviving that? 
That's what they do. Now, Sorry. here comes the coolest thing. They do that by having little crystals in between their cells in their body that make it ice. But the cells themselves are not damaged by the freezing process. So what you can learn from these creatures is that ice and tissues can work together as long as you have a way of forming ice that is not damaging the cells. And now scientists are looking for really clever ways of putting exchange organs on ice while it's being transported from the donor to the recipient in hospital without damaging the organs. How cool is that? Wow. We can learn that from a little New Zealand weather called Hemidina Maori. Lovely name. And the other thing they've learned is how to make better ice cream. <laughs> I thought that was a bonus. Isn't that amazing what we can learn from nature? Mm. Thank you. And any other uh, thoughts from our experts, Mahuru or Norm, about interesting critters or plants that you know of? Um, well, my favourite insect, which I don't know heaps about, so I'm sure rude would, is the pepetuna or the pudidi. And I'm sure you've got one in one of your little thingies somewhere. Yeah, I <laughs> but, do. So I used to work when I finished university and I was sick of learning about science and I wanted to work at a surf school. I, I worked as a cleaner part-time at the surf school and it was up in the bush. And so at night time, the lights would be on so that the guests could find their way around the accommodation. And it would attract all these pepetuna or pūriri moths, these beautiful big green moths out of the bush. And my job when I was cleaning the toilets was to pull all these poor moths out of the bottom of the showers. <laughs> And it always made me just so interested in the, oh, yeah, you can see it there. Rude speaks of your... Um... Well, they, they, the green one is a fresh one. The other ones have lost their colour. Green is a very unstable colour in nature with moths. So this is the one that is the latest one. And these are all turning yellowy, brown, yucky. But these are small males. A female would just fit with its wingspan in this box. Can you imagine that? Huge things. Really so, love them. Yeah, the Ruru love them. Our native bats love them as well. Yeah. Um, they are just, I think, the most beautiful moths. And I always find it really interesting too that they um, live, the little grubs live in the Pudiri tree um, for is it five years or possibly longer? Long time mm -hmm. anyway. Yeah. Yeah, a long time before they emerge and then they only survive as adults for a few days and then they mate and die. So, yeah, it's this incredibly beautiful flamboyant moth that doesn't have a very long life, but um, a real favourite of mine. Mm. Yeah, so it's lived as a caterpillar for all these years in a tree. And then when it comes out with a chrysalis first and then it comes out flies for... 24 hours that's all the time it has to do all its uh, loving living and shopping <laughs> indeed well they that's need, they need to do speed dating eh? um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. i've actually um was at some hot pools recently and uh, we were lucky enough to watch a, a rudu was perched up by a by a light by the hot pools and it was it was sweeping down and gobbling up these uh puriri moths mm. they're just sitting in the hot pools watching it that was really nice yeah awesome sally can i put a question in here for norm you can so norm why do you love kahikatea because i watched your video um and would they grow in alexandra i suspect not but why not yeah, yeah. Uh, yep, they're, they're nationwide. It's a nationwide species. It's, um, but I guess the the reason that um, I'm into it here is um, there's so little of it left in the Waikato, only one to two percent, and nationwide really. Um, in general, where Kakatea likes to grow the most is where people like to put dairy farms, <laughs> and so um, that's why there's so little of it. Um, and I, somewhat ironically, like um, in the early days when people were exporting butter over to 
um, over to England, they would they would use kahikatea wood to package up the butter in big boxes and ship it in refrigerated ships. And you can go online and search that up if you if you search kahikatea butter boxes, you can find some interesting stories about that. Uh, so it was like they cleared the forest and used the wood, and you know and uh, you know put the cows in the place where the forest used to be. Um, the other thing I like about the, um, the Kakatea is just as an ecosystem type, it's really, really interesting. It's because they grow on places where they have, the soil has a lot of fertility. Uh, most of our forest now grows on the soils, which are no good for people to put farms. Um, and so it's just really different. And you get a lot of interesting species there. Um, I do have one here that I've um, they've got a little specimen to show. We'll see if people can see it. Um, so this is called um, Akakiore or um, Parsonsia heterophylla. And I just grabbed this because it's flowering at the moment. Now, this is uh, just a, a real interesting little plant for lots of reasons. First of all, it's got these little flowers. A lot of the New Zealand plant species are like this. They have these little flowers. But if you look at them, they're really beautiful. So it rewards a close look. So you might see a small flower on a native plant, but have a close look and see what you can see. And these ones also have um, a nice fragrance as well. This does grow in Otago, so you should be able to find it if you've got any forest nearby in Alexandra, it may be there. Um, now this is um, another weird thing. I don't know if we can share that picture that I um, sent you, Shelley. I've got a bit um. of a yeah it's disabled oh, look, i will okay. email it to uh the school okay yeah we just have it host only because um if we have other schools sometimes they just press buttoned all over the time and it just makes a big mess oh, yeah. so yeah so um one one of the cool things about this this plant when these flowers they get pollinated and they develop into these big long pods and when the pods split open they've got all these fluffy seeds that come out and they get carried by the wind all over the place. And then the seeds land and then they grow and then try and find a tree to climb up, get to the top of the canopy, get some sunlight and grow more flowers and then more seeds. Um, and another cool thing about this one, if we get that, if we can get that picture, it's got way different um, leaf shapes when it's young uh, versus when it's an adult. So you can see here, it's like, um, it's just got ordinary kind of leaves um but it's got such a wide variety of leaf shapes when it's a, what a juvenile um and so an interesting thing about that is that the the scientific name for this is parsonsia heterophylla and so the word heterophylla means different leaf and so actually it sort of shows you how when we're naming things with scientific names often the scientific name tells us something about the plant so in this case, the scientific name is saying yeah, it has different leaf shapes. And the, other, the reason I mentioned that is because this is a very common feature to a lot of the native plants in New Zealand. And a lot of the native plants, the young ones, will look completely different from the adults. And so that's something to be aware of. Um, it's kind of cool because it means with the New Zealand plants, if you want to be able to identify them, you have to really become have that familiarity so it's you have to have a relationship with the plants to know them to be able to identify them in nature and so it rewards that time just taking that time to go out and keep looking and keep looking and the thing i really like about that is when you're traveling around you might be in a bit of bush or something and every time you know you see a species that you recognize it's like seeing a friend you know you sort of say oh look there's so and so and look that's oh that's producing flowers like this one that i found today i saw the flowers i thought well that's really neat um yeah so uh that's part of the reasons i'm really into kakatea forest because they they support these really cool species a whole host of vines and small leaf shrubs and all sorts of other plants and also bats yeah so um if we've got time <laughs> <laughs> of course and now i've done i've done surveys around around where i live in the Piako district. So just, just around where I live in the countryside, going into the bits of forest and along rivers and stuff like that, looking for our long-tailed bat species. So it's we've only got two native mammal species and they're both bats. And we have uh, long-tailed bats all around here in the Piako district. And so that's something for us to look after as a community. Um, and so how do we look, look out for bats? I've just got a couple of things to show you guys here. This one is, um, you can do it 
with these handheld detectors. You can probably get these from the local dock office and you just go out at night and you, and you point these around. And if the bats, if you, if by chance there's a bat flying past, it'll pick up the sound and it'll turn the, the, the hypersonic sound, which is at a really high frequency that our human ears can't hear. That's what they use to navigate and to locate their food. And this picks it up. Um, the other way we look for, um, for bats is with these uh, acoustic bat monitors. Uh, this is the easy way. You just pick a spot where you think bats might be flying around and you go hang it up in a tree, come back in a couple of weeks and it records the sound of the bats flying past and re represents it as a picture, what they call a sonogram. Um, and so then you just, it's just got an SD card, the same sort of thing you put in a digital camera. Yeah, and so you just take out the SD card, pop it in your computer and see if you've got any bat activity recorded in the sonograms. And so that's a nice way. So this is the, this is the thing I use to look for bat activity around 60 sites in the Piako and found them all over the place, which is really, really exciting because the the most they've got the highest threat status of any any species. Um, and so even though in in the Piako it's all like dairy farms, hardly any native bush, but we've got this biodiversity that we look after so we can still have mm -hmm. a contribution. And I mean there's probably lots of other opportunities for you guys and Alex, you might think oh it's all just sort of like um it's all it's all just barren but you you've got you'll have your special things like your wetters and your skinks and things like that to look after so it's about looking in your area what are the things that are that are there locally for you guys to look after and treasure yeah. looking hard mm. and yeah. that's a great great note to end on because really encourages people to get out discover what's in their backyard look really really carefully not just once because you might miss things and then think about how you might protect it. That's Kia ora right. koutou. Thank you so much to our experts. We are well and truly out of time, but I've so enjoyed <laughs> listening to all your great stories this morning. So thank you very much. And a big thank you to St. Jared's School for such awesome questions that promoted such great conversation. So hopefully that's inspired you to look after your biodiversity and, and discover more about it. Kia ora koutou. On behalf of St. Jared's and our class of Otiaki, we'd like to thank you for expanding our knowledge on biodiversity and we'll surely use it in the future. Oh, fantastic. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Well done. Great job. Really good to hear that you're studying biodiversity and finding out more about it in your own backyard. Thank you so much, everybody. And this session is recorded if you want to go back to it and um, revisit those cool stories. Um, but thank you very much to our experts and to St. Jared's School. I hope you all have a great day. Namahi nui, that brings our Learns Web Conference to an end. Kia ora. Bye. 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 Have a wonderful day. You can go and wash your hands now, Ruth. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. All right, guys. Kia ora. See you soon, eh? Lovely. Right. I hope so. Yeah. Kia ora. I loved it. See you, boom.